BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Amy, have you ever seen Weird Al Yankovic live in concert? No, but I own all of his albums. Oh, my gosh. Well, you are missing out because he is amazing live, and he just did this really cool tour, which was basically uh, a very pared-down version of Al. It was called the Ridiculously Self-Indulgent, Ill-Advised Vanity Tour, where for the first time, he just played his original songs. There were 77 performances of this tour, and every show is unique with a different set list, and the entire tour is now available on, guess what? What? Stitcher Premium. Isn't that amazing? Like, this is the future we were promised. You can hear every... This is like the Pearl Jam of Weird Al. This is my fish right here. (laughs) This is my fish. Bring it on. I cannot wait. And I love uh, Weird Al original songs. They're the weirdest and funniest. As a kid, they made me laugh so, so hard. So if you want to check it out and get a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com slash Weird Al and use the promo code UNSPOOLED. That's U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D, unspooled. And you'll get a free month and you can listen to all 77 sets. Today's episode is brought to you by Pitney Bowes. Pitney Bowes. No matter what your small office needs or sends, Pitney Bowes Send Pro C200. 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 It's got you covered. C200 lets you send mail and packages. Guess what? From your desk. That means no lines, man. That means you don't have to go to the post office, interact with all those grossos. Do it all from your desk. And you get to save three cents a letter. Three cents a letter and 39% off any retail shipping rates. You are gaming the system by using a Pitney Bowes Send Pro C200. You are getting money back. So start saving today and get a free 60-day trial of a Pitney Bowes C200 by going to pb.com slash unspooled. Unspooled. That's pb.com slash unspooled. Terms apply. See site for details. It's 1968. There's a bone, a ship, a pen, and the story of mankind. 2001, A Space Odyssey.
everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And you are listening to our podcast where we go through AFI's top 100 films of all time, the 2007 list. And last week we talked about Titanic. And I have to say, a lot of you were in our camp. You love this movie. I lost count of how many people tweeted and said that listening to our podcast made them cry. I the know. podcast. I never thought a podcast could make people cry. One person tweeted that he was pulling up for a job interview, yes. blasting My Heart Will Go On on the speakers, and I, I really hope he got the job. <laughs> you should get the job. If you are confident enough to play Celine Dion while driving into a job interview, you should get that job. Well, people did point out that we did not go hard enough on the character of Cal, of Billy Zane. Oh, yeah, we really didn't talk about Cal that much. We didn't, and Cal is a ridiculous creature. Although yes. somebody had the brilliant idea where they said the reason why Cal is so dastardly, yeah. why he's basically a dude with a twiddly mustache is because Titanic is being told through Rose's memory. So she only remembers what a jerk he was and forgets all the good, all the maybe good stuff that he well, might have done. I have a question. Was Cal on that Titanic, her her dream heaven Titanic at the end? He is not on the heaven Titanic. So then basically Rose has assigned Cal to hell. <laughs> Cal is in hell right now Wait, burning. I'm sorry. Are you saying that Titanic is heaven? Because I'm not disagreeing. Well, I feel like that that's her heaven. It's very... Um, Lostian in the sense that like whatever group that you experienced a great trauma with, you are also just in heaven with them. It's like the church in Lost. Spoiler alert. Hope I didn't wreck Lost for you. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but so now let's talk about a movie that might be even more epic in scope. I mean, yes. James Cameron rebuilds the world's biggest ship. And now we have Stanley Kubrick taking us to the end of the universe, because we're going to talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey. I am so excited about it. Let's get into it now. Number 15 on the list, pretty high up on the list. Uh, we saw that 2001 A Space Odyssey was playing in the uh, in the cinemas. That's right. It was doing a road show. Um, it's a Christopher Nolan restored cut of the film, but nothing added. Completely the way it was shot and intended to be screened with an overture and an intermission and uh, scratches all over the screen. It was kind of amazing to watch it in 70 millimeter projection and to see a movie that has not been redone or, you know, cleaned up. I feel like we're in an age where everyone's going back and revisiting film. And this is great to watch just what it was presented as it was. Yeah, last week we were talking about how James Cameron went and prettied up his Titanic and made it 3D. This is just, hey, you wanted to see it like the stoner saw it? Here you go. And by the way, Paul, you lied to me. You did not get Twizzlers. You got Reese's Pieces, which I are know. also really good. Well, thank you. But they don't have Twizzlers in these fancy movie houses out here in L.A. They only have these red vines. And I uh, very rarely find a theater out here that uh, that carries them. I'm this, mad. <laughs> this would explain why when we sat down, you grabbed a red vine from producer Josh. Hey, producer Josh, from his hands and tossed it in the air like a bone. Yeah, I, th I threw it up so high in the sky. <laughs> um, this movie was made in 1968, which is amazing. This movie came out before the moon landing. Yeah, the moon landing was the year after this. And not only that, we didn't even know really what Earth looked like from space until 1972. That's the first time we got that picture of the blue marble. We, wow. He was just guessing, and he did a really good job. The movie did come out in 1968, and just a couple of things, just to lay the groundwork. Uh, Robert Kennedy, assassinated. Zodiac Killer started murdering. Uh, Big Mac goes on sale for the first time. 
other films that are starting to come out here, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Bonnie and Clyde, The Odd Couple, and Planet of the Apes. So, you know, we're in this zone where there's a lot of different things at play. I mean, that's a great year for film. I feel like my interaction with this film has always been like, we got to get high and watch 2001, or I've been watching it late at night. I think I've seen 2001 three times, and I don't think I've ever really taken it in the way I took it in in the theater. And I think this is one of those rare films that really benefits from a theater experience. Yeah, this was only the second time I'd seen it big. And the first time I saw it big, I was in high school, and they showed it at the auditorium, and I made it with my boyfriend in the back and did not pay attention. I think because I was a hot take queen in high school, I was like, that's overrated, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So I am glad that we sat down and just sat there and took this movie in. There was an intermission. We got up. I got a Red Bull. It was beautiful. I felt like watching it yesterday, I got this movie more than I ever got it. I feel like it's totally breaks down what a film even is. It's not a documentary. It's not a, uh, it's not a drama. It's, it really is an experience and you need to be there for the sounds and the sights and really let it overtake you. It's interesting because Kubrick said that his main aim with this film was to avoid intellectual verbalization and to reach the viewer's subconscious. He didn't want to strive for ambiguity as much as he wanted people to talk about it and bring their own theories about the film to the film. Very few films do that. That's interesting because one of the quotes that I grabbed from Kubrick talking about 2001 is he compared it to the Mona Lisa. He said, how much would we appreciate La Gioconda today if Leonardo had written at the bottom of the canvas, the lady is smiling slightly because she has rotten teeth. But I want to take that another step further because pointing to the Mona Lisa, you're pointing to something really representational. Whereas what 2001 reminds me more of is modern art. It reminds me of Rothko. When I look at Hal's eye, this chunk of red, this chunk of yellow, to me that's like staring at a Rothko painting, which I used to hate because I would look at them in high school and I was like making it with my boyfriend. Right. I was like, Always what the making fuck out is with this your boyfriend. Shit? Is this yeah. the same boyfriend that was in the Burger King with you? Different boyfriend. Okay. Oh, I, oh, we're gonna. Oh, I have a boyfriend for every episode of this podcast <laughs> series. Um, the theory of modern art, the theory of a Rothko, is it's you stare at this blankness, this bright colored blankness, and what are you feeling? What's getting drawn out of you? And that's what I feel like two thousand one is. It feels like modern art to me. Maybe the best way to talk about it is to talk about each section and what kind of gets brought up there. I mean, this movie starts literally at the dawn of man. Exactly. You have this cluster of apes, and they're collected in piles. They're sort of wild. They're fighting over the basic human resources, they're, or apish resources, I guess. Yeah. They're fighting over water. They're fighting over food. There's two bands of apes. And these apes aren't anthropomorphized at all. They're acting like apes. You know, they're kicking in the dirt. When they're thinking, they twist their head to the side all crazy. We're not trying to see even the human and the apes. They're acting like animals. <laughs> And then this monolith lands, this monolith with this, like, terrifying coral hum, and it inspires the apes to invent weapons and then to invent warfare and to start dominating each other at a time when it's so new, the idea that you can have a weapon to kill something, that right after they first grab the bone and they're, like, killing these tapirs, these, like, kind of pig-like animals, the tapirs are still just hanging out around them while they're eating one of their own kind. Like, the tapirs haven't even adjusted to the idea that they're prey yet. 
I think Kubrick was very aware that he needed this section to come alive, so he hired these mimes. And knowing that they could tell a story without words. And so you really, I think, start feeling for the apes when, when, the, when the ape clan uh, kills the member of the other ape clan. You see it on the bodies of the, the ape clan who's had their leader killed. Like you see them retreat in a way and, and you see the excitement of violence and the excitement of victory. Even the way the chimpanzees who have seen their leader die act, the movie doesn't do the close-up on the dying chimp's face. It doesn't do the high drama of it. Even as they're backing away, they look confused. It's like, right. what really happened there? And I think it's so telling that even though there's this main ape on the ape weapon side, who was played by a guy who was actually a heroin addict. He was a junkie. Oh, really? He was shooting up nonstop while he was being an ape. He does the first blow, but all of the apes pitch in. It isn't about one man becoming a killer. It's about an entire tribe becoming a killer. An entire tribe is guilty. It's so interesting to watch the way the apes interact. They interact with... Uh, violence, the way that they interact with the monolith. They're scared of it, and they're scared of what they can do. You know, they touch the monolith very gently, like gingerly, and, and pulling it back. And when they go in to beat this monkey from another tribe, they kick him, and then they run away, and then they come back. Like it, there's Before this, they have been the prey. These, these apes have been the prey. They're cowering in fear of the leopard, you know, who's killed the zebra. By the way, do you know how they did that sequence? And I'm asking it genuinely. The leopard jumping onto one of the apes, because that leopard looked real, and that ape looked like a man in a monkey suit. So I don't know. Like, I know the zebra that it's eating is a dead horse they found and then okay. painted to look like a zebra. But I mean, when that then that leopard jumped down, I was like, "Whoa!" How? And that, I felt like that throughout this entire movie, which is amazing that a movie made in the in the late '60s. I'm like, "How did they do this?" Yeah, but to your point about violence here, you know, they are terrified of their new power. They're not just like, "We're awesome!" Like the apes aren't chest bumping or anything, right? And is man man because they have the ability to kill other man? I mean, is that like is that the thesis that's going on here? And is that the journey that we're going on for this entire film? You know, the enlightenment that we first get is so primitive. And it's just like, I can take one thing to hurt something. And then as the film goes on, what is the rebirth? What is where is the next level of man going? I think it's yeah, it's a there... very deep. I mean, we're going into a lot of stuff. Yeah, we wait, invisible joint. Remember yeah. invisible joint from when we were talking about the room. <laughs> this is an invisible joint episode. I mean, there's almost a world where that first ape grabbing the weapon and playing with the ribs would have just invented the marimba. Right. You know, what if I would? What if I didn't invite a weapon? What if I invented? music here. Although I think the invention of music to me is like a subtle point throughout the whole film because there's such a classic epic cl score here of the great classical composers really throwing their weight around and, and showing like this is what humankind has created. But you mentioned all these apes holding together in caves, you know, just clustered on each other. They're basically like lumps of apes. They're a collective. And we don't see that again with whatever these apes become. You know, humans get more and more sparse. They're locked in sarcophaguses. They're isolated from each other. This is the last moment we see the species that we are united. In a way, it's kind of a brilliant foreshadowing of where we are as a culture now. I mean, once we got weapons and tools and technology, uh, it kind of pulled us away from the group and being kind of surrounded by just our core family unit. 
I think it's such an interesting idea to kind of present to an audience that not only are we going to go back and see what we are. We are apes. We are violent apes. At our core, that's who we are. And I think the whole rest of the movie, especially in the second half, uh, is showing us, oh, we are still these violent apes, but now we're just putting on suits and we're in nice places and we look and we appear nice, but we still have like this evil nature underneath us. You know, it's like we, you can dress up a pig, but it's still a pig kind of thing. You can murder a pig with a bone and then it's just a (laughs) dead pig. Um, Before we jump to the next segment though, let's talk about this monolith because what we see in the beginning of 2001 is beige, brown, lumpy, dirty. There's nothing with sharp edges like mm -hmm. this monolith. It shows up and there's nothing like it on earth. And you know that it's not from here. And it got me thinking like, why is that? Like, do we have stuff in nature that looks like this? And all I could think of were crystals. And then I thought about how a bunch of my friends have crystals and like, my crystal has power. And I was like, right. is this just because anything with a flat side of nature seems really powerful? Well, you know, it's interesting because the monolith that we see in the film was not the monolith that Kubrick originally wanted. He wanted it to be a clear plexiglass object. But I think that the dark monolith is something that is more dramatic because it's a little bit more intimidating. You know, plexiglass, you can see through it. And that was actually the problem with the uh, plexiglass monolith. It was a nightmare to kind of shoot it and it didn't look good. Yeah, I'm just picturing fingerprints all over that thing. (laughs) But Um, I like the idea of the monolith because I think initially uh, Kubrick wanted to have just aliens, you know, these aliens. What are these aliens going to tell us about this conflict between – us and the people from above. And instead, I think it was Carl Sagan who said, your, your alien tests are really dumb. Here you are putting men in suits. Let's not do that. You can't make an alien that has as much awe as seeing a thing an alien might leave behind. A hundred percent. I think uh, we can see someone like Steven Spielberg, who's a giant Kubrick fan with Close Encounters. I mean, you see aliens very briefly at the very end, but it's all about why are they here? What's going on above us? There's a mystery to it. You get a taste of it. It's, yeah. There's something interesting. Because I think most movie aliens look stupid, honestly. Like we're in oh, this yeah. period right now that I hate that are like the fang on fang on fang drool aliens, oh, which are I just hate that. the grossest. And it opens its mouth and it's going to have like seven. It's like a blender of teeth. And yeah. who gives a shit? Every monster has that right now. It's so boring. I blame Cloverfield because I think that was the first time they introduced that type of alien and it was successful and people were like, more of those aliens, but they didn't realize it wasn't the alien that was successful. It was like the way that they shot that horror movie. No more rows of teeth, please. Um, But conversely, here with like space and aliens and, and tropes, I think Cooper kind of broke all the tropes that we were used to. Okay, so for context, here is where Kubrick was coming from when he began to map out 2001. Four years before 2001 comes out, he does Dr. Strangelove, and everybody was thinking he's not going to be able to make something that awesome again. So he was kind of coasting on his mojo. You know, it's like it's like being Quentin Tarantino after you make Pulp Fiction. What are you going to do? And well, this was what he wanted to do. He wanted to make a movie about space in a moment where we were very space-obsessed as a country, and he wanted to do something that I think – I like this because it goes back to episode one. He wanted to do something that went against Orson Welles because Orson Welles had kind of set the tone for space and for space movies when he had done the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. And Kubrick was like, okay, 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 okay. He had enough of this pulp science fiction stuff that Orson Welles made popular. What he wanted to do was take away this mass hysteria panic and just put the awe in there to change the tone of how we made science fiction movies. Okay, so talking about that famous kind of transition from the bone into the space station, 
I think a lot of people talk about, you know, this transition from, you know, a primitive tool to a modern tool. But Gary Lockwood always said, and he's one of the astronauts in the film, that it's going from one weapon to the next because I guess in an original script version of the film, the satellite was armed with nuclear weapons. So it's sort of like, here's the original weapon, and now it's going up to the satellite full of nuclear weapons, which is an interesting uh, idea, too. Yeah, we can't stop building weapons, I, I guess. You know, part of the pulp film tradition at that point when it came to sci-fi movies was to have these, like, saucer-shaped alien pods, you know, the 1950s yeah. things that look like a plate being thrown down. And that's a lot of why Kubrick was like, no, let's get to science. I want to undo all of this and make it practical. And that kind of authenticity comes out in the way that the film is production designed. He actually worked with a man who worked at NASA to help design the look and the feel of the ships. Um, so much so, this guy was embedded in NASA so much that his designs required security clearance by NASA before they could be used in the film. Um, and even when uh, this guy Lang said, like, why would you want to use me? You could get, you know, artists for peanuts. And he's like, no, I want you because you work there. You know what they look like. And I think that's why when you watch this movie – there are these elements in it that, oh, is that an iPad? It is. I mean, they have things that are things that we have now. Yeah, they invented iPads. They invented back of the TV screens on airplanes. Yeah. They invented smartwatches. They invented everything here because they were trying to dream up what the future would look like. And they were right. In fact, I have this Arthur C. Clarke speech that I want to play a little bit of. To put this in context, Arthur C. Clarke is telling a room full of people who have not seen 2001 A Space Odyssey yet because it's 1968. He hasn't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey yet. He's just seen chunks of it. They're about to say it. He says something that to them sounds crazy, but we know is right. I think the care and attention to detail that has been given to the equipment of the hardware in this movie is quite unprecedented. And this establishes, I think, a sense of, of realism which will make it impossible to believe that the year 2000 is not going to be like this. I, am, I seriously thought that it may have a profound effect on spaceship design <laughs> in the years to come. People will be doing things they saw in this movie, even real spaceship designers, even though it may not be the best way of doing it, they will sort of unconsciously be affected by some of the concepts. Yeah, he has a nervous laugh. The camera cuts around. You see all these other people look at him and nervously laugh. But he's correct. Well, here's something that I found in research. I didn't realize because I think I grew up in a time where space is exciting. There's movies like Space Camp when I was a kid. It was like you wanted to go to space. You know, outer space was like the last starfighter and exciting things. But here at this time, people were afraid. And I think that knowing that now it's really interesting too. It's like calming those fears in a movie that I think is very stark. It offers a lot of hope too. Yeah, I think they did legitimately think that in 2001, in the year 2001, 17 years ago, we would be in space by then because the trajectory had been just zooming uphill like that from Sputnik to Laika to walking on the moon, which was about to happen. I mean, Kubrick was so freaked out that aliens were going to come down and visit Earth before 2001 came out that he actually wrote an insurance policy for Lloyds of London. And he was like, if this comes out, sabotages my movie because now I know what aliens are. Nobody cares about my movie anymore. I want to be protected. And they're like, what are you doing? You can't really do that. I love that he did that. That, that is one of the most beautifully paranoid uh, filmmaker things I've ever heard, <laughs> that the real – the real discovery of alien life would wreck his movie, and he needs to make sure that that doesn't happen. That is next level. 
we talked about James Cameron being a guy who is, quote unquote, like a jerk. And I think that Kubrick and uh, Cameron share a lot in common. You know, this kind of grueling production, this attention to detail, this, um, you know, down to the minutia of how an actor should be and how the line should be said. They have the vision in their head and they've spent so long looking at it. I once actually worked with a location scout who was sent out to take pictures of these streets that Kubrick was going to recreate on a set. And he needed to take them in a specific way. And he said that Kubrick lined up the pictures throughout the whole house so it would be a 360-degree view in this room so he could see the street. He wouldn't go to the street in London, but he wanted pictures of the street that he could actually have in his room so he could always be in the middle of the street. Like, this is a guy who was his attention to detail and his eccentricities are both at such a heightened state. Yeah, that's kind of why I go hot and cold on Kubrick a little bit because I think when you stack up him and James Cameron, which I think is such a good example. I love that we're doing these two back-to-back, by the way. You know, James Cameron saw 2001 when he was 14. He called it mind-blowing. It really did just kind of bust him in half. And they both have this talent at showing the sense of scale, about showing, like, tiny people inside of giant things, about paying tribute to facts, about trying to make things as real and tangible as possible. And they were both pursuing awe. I mean, you can't think about the awesome silences in Titanic without thinking about the awesome silences here in 2001. How he builds suspense in 2001 just with the sound of somebody breathing. And that's scarier than any terrifying drumbeat. I think that James Cameron is a guy who cares about the people inside of the spectacle, whereas I've always felt like Kubrick is more interested in just the spectacle. See, I actually think he tells stories about people caught in a spectacle, if that makes sense. It's sort of like how we lose humanity in these bigger moments. Like, you you lose a piece of yourself. Like, when the Titanic is going down, you're killing people. You would never have done that in real life. You know, here in 2001, you know, he's making these choices that are because of the situation he's in. Whoa, so sort of like... How you go to the edge of the universe and everything flattens out and you as a human almost get flattened out because there's just so much insane pressure happening? I think that that's a part of what Kubrick does. It's like even in stuff like Eyes Wide Shut, these people are pushed to a breaking point and then we're seeing what they're made of. And we talk about that idea that he makes somebody do a line so many times. And I think that that's breaking down artifice because the person itself is like peeling away more and more layers of themselves. I mean, I think it's cruel. But to hear you describe it like that, it sounds genius. (laughs) Because I think us as humans have backslid. We no longer dream to reach for the stars anymore. Yeah. Which is sad. Or the monolith, really. Or the monolith. I mean, one of my favorite books, actually, as a tiny, fast detour, I'm going to get as fast as I can, is James Mishner's Space. And he said that we should never try to go to the moon because once we try to go to the moon, that's easy. It's attainable. And then humans will stop dreaming of what we can really see after that. And that it will turn into an anti-science movement because we'll be so scared of the possibilities that we'll retreat within ourselves. And that is exactly what happened. And Werner Von Braun calls it in James Mishner's space, best book ever. That's incredibly fascinating that we have become lazy in this world that was so exciting to us. It it feels like there is nothing left out there. We don't care anymore. When we hear about something, you see the collective mindset like, oh my gosh, there really are UFOs. Like that just happened a couple of months ago where we put it out of our head because we as a world, I think, 
are much more insular. It's like, again, like we're going into those fetal positions, but not with each other, just kind of by ourselves and our computers in a way. Yeah, which makes perfect sense with the second segment of this because we're on this pod. We're going off to the airport, the yeah. air station supply. And we're with a guy, Dr. Haywood Floyd, who knows now that we have aliens and he's letting everybody think that there is instead a contagion on the moon because he thinks humans can't stand the truth, which we can't. No, absolutely. He's protecting everybody. I have this theory about how to really make a space movie pop. Okay. And it is, don't show us like, oh my God, look at the wonder of staring out of the window. Show us the little things that we can relate to. Show us the way that the stewardess walks. Show us her slow crouch. And that seems more alien and more spectacular than anything else because we can close our eyes and imagine a galaxy, but to see a human being walk in a way that we know is unnatural feels wild. And also what he does in here through that is the one thing he always comes back to in each of these space segments is food. Actually, maybe in all of the segments, if you count the raw tapir that the monkeys are eating, it's always food. It's always food because I think food to us, we relate to it. Here, let's listen to this conversation about sandwiches. Oh, anybody hungry? Uh, What do we got? You name it. What's that, chicken? Something like that. Tastes the same anyway. (laughs) Got any ham? What I think is so smart about it is it takes this epic scale and it reduces it to the size of something you and I understand that we can hold in our hands. I totally agree. I think by taking the familiar, which is like air travel, and then showing us what space travel is, but not changing that much, it really um, grounds you. So you can actually focus more on the awe of it. It's not like, oh, it's so scary. It's like, oh, that seems great. It seems aspirational in a weird way. Yeah, he finds awe in the ordinary because Mm -hmm. I think there's a way where a director would have a character look out the window and be like, wow, that's pretty. But instead, he has these characters fall asleep, look bored, grab their pen. Make a phone call. Make a phone call because they've done this so much. And the idea that they've done this so much is almost more awe-inspiring than the glamour shot. Right. We're already there. It's This is passe to us. Actually, as a matter of fact, there was like 19 minutes of this film that were cut out uh, before he screened it the first time. And in those 19 minutes, it's more of this day-to-day life. You see Haywood Floyd buy one of these bush babies. Uh, You see him- uh, What is a bush baby? A bush baby is like a, I guess they look like a monkey and a ferret combined. They're in the Galapagos and they are just like cute little social creatures. So I want one. Daddy, I want a phone (laughs) and a bush baby. I like these bush babies. Um, But they showed a lot more of that day-to-day life on the space station, which I thought- was kind of fascinating. And also, to get financing for this film, he engaged with all these different companies. That's why you see IBM fully featured or Parker Pens in the film. In even going back to your point about food, he talked to scientists about the future of food in space. So everything feels like it's coming from uh, an absolute real place. Yeah, and to get to that idea of sensory again, because I always love it when a character reacts to something in their world. One of my favorite details is that when the astronauts are taking their food out of the microwave, I think this is in the third, the third segment yeah. in the Jupiter section, oh. it's hot. And you get that jump of, oh, I feel present in this scene because we're seeing what it's like to touch that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, that scene to me felt the most of its time. You know, it, it, you're you're watching one guy eating food, watching his iPad. Another guy comes over with another iPad watching the same thing. Like They're just disconnected the way that we are. So in that way, nailed it, Kubrick. Um, 
I wanted to ask you about aesthetic choices. This movie is very much a 60s film in its look, in the style of like the chairs and the the furniture. Like, do you think that that is a smart choice? Because obviously at the time when you're watching it, it feels more familiar. And now as we're further away from it, it oddly feels timeless. I love it in a way that kind of bums me out because one of the things that makes me depressed about modern fashion is that we're just looking back to the past, that we've been in this mid-century modern thing forever, that we're not inventing stuff new. I feel like the last time we as a culture, as furniture designers, as people seeking out the cutting edge did that was the 80s when we had like big lip-shaped couches and all sorts of crazy stuff. And for most of my life, we have not been pushing the level in terms of design. We've just been going back to classics, different types of classics, and we haven't been trying to go to space. It's like we got to the 80s and then just stopped. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. I think that the 60s and the 70s brought like this new auteur that came alive in the 80s and 90s, but I don't think the voices really changed until the late 90s and maybe like Quentin Tarantino in that indie style, and that pushed it forward. But stylistically, I feel like most of those choices were made in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I feel like our auteurs are just remixing things. Yeah. And they're remixing them in interesting combinations, but they're not saying, here's a thing you've never seen before. Right. I mean, the closest, most recent film I can compare this to is Annihilation Mm -hmm. with Natalie Portman that just came out uh, like maybe six months ago. And there was something really exciting about that film because it felt like this as well. Like, we're not telling you everything. We're letting you kind of walk through it. Did you hate that movie? I could, or. <laughs> no, I liked it. I liked, I mean, I go hot and cold with Natalie Portman and I'm trying to get over it because okay. it's my own fault. But as a filmmaker and what they're doing in that movie, that was the first time I'd seen a movie in a while where I was like, oh, wow, I left this theater thinking about something and wanting to read and wanting to communicate with people and talk about it and go, what is the underlying thing about that? And I feel like we're often served a plate of food. Like, here, eat this food. This is what you're getting out of it. You know, that's so interesting because you're talking about a sci-fi movie. And I think we're talking about sci-fi movies because of Kubrick and because of 2001, because this movie legitimized sci-fi. I think the most interesting stuff we're doing in modern movies is in this genre work. And it's because of 2001, for better and worse, I guess, like saying dramas are fine, but let's just blow your mind. Let's use allegory. Let's use metaphor. Let's use heightened situations and, and death and giant quests. Yeah, I think it's, in a weird way, sci-fi has always been this strong undercurrent of a way to tell a story, you know, going back to Star Trek, you know, where we're talking about what's going on in society, but we distance it. So we don't feel like it is a drama, but because it's a genre, we don't we don't feel so attacked by it. We can be like, we can stand aside from it and look at it. And I think what we've done now is we've kind of embraced comic books as like our new genre that we're telling stories in. And it, I don't think that comic books, as much as I love reading comic books, have that same uh, kind of undercurrent underneath it. It's much more of the spectacle and the fun and the colors without the the meat underneath it, like uh, like the Twilight Zone had or like Star Trek had, you know, those kind of, yeah. what are we saying about society? I feel like comic book movies want to come out and give you like a hug or a high five or like a fist bump. And Kubrick is like, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, Floyd goes to the moon, uh, Cassian, and sees the monolith that they've uncovered there, Um, It emits this noise. And when we were seeing it in the theater, the noise was beyond piercing. I mean, I – and in seeing it at home, I never got that level of noise. Like, it was – 
painful to be in the theater when that noise went on. Should we play a little bit of that? Yeah, just say, to like, get an idea. With a warning, yeah. Yo, if you got your headphones in your ears, maybe take one out. Ah, okay. Okay. Oh. All right. All right. And, all right. And that is loud. But even in the theater, like I literally felt like I needed to cover my ears. I thought that was such a brilliant, crazy thing because it's like I think the idea is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the monolith is, is signaling. Like w- humans have now upgraded to this level. They found it, and now we're sending the next signal out to Jupiter. Like that's like it's kind of a homing beacon. But that sound is so so piercing. Yeah, I was picturing during that moment the meetings that Kubrick must have had with the producers to be like, why are you trying to make the audience miserable? Yeah. And he was like, let's do it. I want them to feel uncomfortable. He wants you to feel uncomfortable and he wants you to feel almost like you need to put your hands over your ears, that you're terrified of what's happened. Actually, yeah, let's keep talking about sound for a second and how it relates to the monolith. Because the monolith emits another really distinctive sound, which is the sound of of human voices, this murmuring beastly civilization terrifying sound and it's in contrast to everything else in the film all the all the rest of the music which is very symphonic and pompous almost it's it's almost like human beings congratulating themselves for the tools with which they have made this classical music versus just murmuring human terror the sound of just humans out of control by the way that blue danube clip I think that reminds me of a little question we should be asking ourselves this week. I think I know where you're going with this one. Was it on The Simpsons? Hey, guys, look what I smuggled aboard. Homer, no! Huh? They'll clog the instruments! Careful, they're ruffled. I'll take care of this. <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah, that pulling back makes sense, especially, you know, talking about like comparing this film to something like Titanic, where the characters in 2001 remind me more of, honestly, Citizen Kane, of Jerry Thompson, of a figure who's just there in the movie to get it going. The reporter guy who's trying to track down what Rosebud means. Yeah. Nobody is watching 2001 because they love Kier Due. They're watching it for the world that Kubrick has created. And to me, that's always been one of the things I wrestle with as a person who loves actors, who loves Leonardo DiCaprio, who loves seeing people shine, is that Kubrick is, to me, very sets and ideas first and actors later. He almost never has actors nominated for acting awards. It's not really what's important to him. I, I think I started to turn against Kubrick when I was researching my Tom Cruise book, and I heard that he made Tom Cruise walk through a door in Eyes Wide Shut 90 times. And there's a way of hearing that line where you think, oh, wow, Kubrick made a guy walk through a door 90 times. He must really have something exact in mind. Or you could hear that story and be like, wow, Kubrick made a guy walk through the door 90 times. Couldn't he just tell him what he wanted? Why was he so crazy about this? Well, isn't it the idea that you're pulling back artifice? Like, I think that uh, when you talk about Fincher, he goes through the same idea that if you he doesn't want you to be programmed with what you think it is. He wants you to just be natural. And I think Kubrick, you know, there's a great documentary on the Shining DVD uh, where Jack Nicholson is kind of going through the same process. He can break an actor if you're not prepared for it. Because didn't Tom Cruise get an ulcer from that film, like Eyes Wide Shut? Yeah, that was a nightmare for Tom Cruise. I think he was in London for over two years. At the height of his career, he'd just made Mission Impossible. He'd just been nominated for an Oscar for Jerry Maguire. He's in London going through absolute hell because he worshipped Kubrick so much. 
I mean, and I think you have to sign up for that challenge. I mean, it's the reason why Harvey Keitel left Eyes Wide Shut. He's like, I'm out. Dude, can't do it. Not into it. Um, it's true. And it also speaks to the idea that Kubrick doesn't want his humans acting like humans. Honestly, he's not a human. It's inter- This is a movie about the human story, but I wouldn't say it's a humanist story. Like he even would say like Care was waking up from a nap. He would tell Care, don't flutter your eyes, don't yawn, don't stir, don't rub. Just open them. You know, just open them like you're a robot. Good evening. Three weeks ago, the American spacecraft Discovery 1 left on its half-billion-mile voyage to Jupiter. So in this next sequence, the Jupiter mission, this is arguably where the plot of the movie really lives. I mean, this is where we're seeing the most uh, quote-unquote action. I mean, this is the the movie. It's a mission that goes wrong, and, um, and we are introduced to Hal. You know, in watching it, I think the one thing that you know, the one memeable moment, is that we all know Hal is a bad computer, right? We all know Hal is a bad guy. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. But think about the people seeing this movie for the first time, not knowing that. And the reveal that this computer is bad must have been mind-blowing. It's right before the intermission of this film. I mean, I'm Team Hal. Can I just say that? Really? (laughs) I like Hal. I think Hal is absolutely the most empathetic character in the entire film. Hal has so much emotion in his voice. You know, he can feel confident. He can feel weak. He gets insulted in front of himself all the time. People are demeaning him. They're like, oh, he can reproduce or mimic the human brain. He's wishing people happy birthdays and, like, their families aren't telling him hello. He watches Dave draw art of all of the passed out dudes in the sarcophagi, and Dave never dines to draw him. He's getting insulted. He's keeping everybody alive. And he cares, and nobody cares back. I love Hal. I mean, he deserves to have pride. He deserves to have everything. And he is he can't help being who he is. He beats everybody at chess. He doesn't want to beat everybody at chess, but it's what he does. He can't make mistakes. And so nobody wants to play chess with him. So he's incredibly lonely. And by the way, Kubrick, when he was really poor before he became a filmmaker, he would play chess all the time for money in Washington Park in New York. He would play it like all day. He'd make like three bucks a day. Big chess guy. So well, I think Kubrick empathizes. Well, you know, it's interesting you brought that up because there is a lot of lore around the chess game. People believe that Kubrick created a cheat that we would not notice, only chess players would notice, because basically Hal lies. Hal lies to win the game. Hal didn't describe his moves properly. He should have said queen to bishop six. He's describing a mate in two moves, when in reality, Frank could have prolonged the game and didn't need to concede it so early. In describing the wrong move, Hal cheats his way to victory. Uh, That's a little bit of the lore uh, going on. Yeah, so he embedded even that much detail into it. So also, it shows that Hal's lying. Yeah. Uh, from an early point. It's Kubrick laying the groundwork that yes. then pays off when we realize that Hal is capable of deceit. When David and Frank go into the space pod, think he can't hear them, ask him to turn the pod around, we learn that Hal can read their lips and he's just pretending like he can't hear them to see what they're going to say about him behind his back. Can I tell you an interesting story about this? That sequence is arguably one of the best sequences in the film. You know, you find out that Hal is reading their lips, but was not in the original script. Apparently, um, Gary Lockwood thought he was going to get fired because one day he was doing this scene with Hal where Poole's going back and forth with Hal. He's being a little testy with him. And the actor, Gary Lockwood, was also getting a little frustrated with the sequence. And Kubrick was like, "Are you, what's going on here? And uh, 
Poole's like, Bob, actually a little bit bored with this scene. So Kubrick sent him home and he's like, oh my God, I, I think I may have been fired. And so all of a sudden, later that night, knock on the door, Stanley comes in, says, can I make you a drink? Now Lockwood's freaked out. He's like, oh my God, I just said it was bored on a Stanley Kubrick movie. He's my idol. I don't know what to do. And he goes, let me cut to the chase here. Am I fired? And Kubrick's like, no, you're not fired. He's like, but that scene's not working. We need to figure out how to communicate your frustration with Hal better. So Lockwood thought on it and said, what if Hal could read lips? And the associate producer's like, oh, that's a great idea. What if they get in the pod? So the actors could feel like they could get out all this exposition about what they're feeling. And hence, one of the most critical scenes in the entire movie is formed. And it actually allows, I think, Hal to be more powerful instead of having this combative relationship with Hal where they were like fighting with him. It's more secretive. They're being secretive. So you, uh, you, to your point, you start to feel for Hal. Like they're going, let's kill him. He finds out and he's just responding. Yeah, and uh, we're watching that scene through his point of view. We're right. inside him looking out at them. We're identifying with Hal. And Hal is even talking. I mean, that's like a Hitchcockian setup for us to know that somebody knows something that the other characters don't know. Which is perfect because Hal, to me, even talks like a Hitchcock villain. You know, his voice here is by Douglas Rain, who read all of his lines in a day and a half, didn't really read the rest of the 40 script. minutes, they said. Oh, my God. And he reads it kind of to me like like Peter Lorre. He's a villain who doesn't raise his voice. Well, it's so interesting because they went through so many actors to do this voice. Originally, it was going to be a woman. Uh, and it was going to be called Athena. Then they went to like, a person like Marty Balsam. Remember him? Like that actor? Like he's, I think, in taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and among wow. other things. Uh, they just did so many different ideas, but they went back to this guy that actually influenced all of 2001. Do you know the whole idea with Douglas Rain? Okay, so Douglas Rain um, was the narrator of this 28-minute Oscar-nominated documentary from 1960 called The Universe. I watched a little bit of it last night. We can link it in the show notes. If you were to hover in space beyond the moon, speeding up in imagination its movement, you would see a majestic procession in the sky. As the moon circles the earth, so the earth itself circles the sun. It's where Kubrick got all of his inspiration for the space sequences. Like you can totally see what the universe gave to 2001 in a way. Like, you know, when you see the landscape and you see like that solarized version of, you know, uh, plateaus and things like that. This is all kind of set up in this movie, The Universe. And the narrator of the universe was Douglas Rain. That sounds so trippy. By the way, can I just say that when we get to the solarized landscape? I like the ocean solarization so much better than the mountain solarization. I'm like, canyons, I know what a canyon looks like. But whenever they do that silvery, weird reflection on the water, I'm like, where are we? This is insane. (laughs) Okay, we are about at the intermission point of this movie where you and I got up and I went and got a Red Bull. I think we should give people a break. I like that. All right, we'll be back right after these words from our sponsors. Hey, Amy, have you listened to Paul F. Tompkins' show, Spontaneous Nation? Uh, this is why I get a little nervous whenever he walks in the Euro studio. I'm like, oh my God, it's Paul F. Tompkins. It's a great 
improv show, and I feel like it's so good because it's so uh, well-crafted and smart, and Paul just puts together the best groups of people. Basically, he gets um, his comedy pals to meet up with a interview from a famous pal, uh, like LeVar Burton or Allison Brie, John Hamm. I even did one. And then they improvise off of this interview. And in honor of Pride Month right now, Paul has only LGBTQ guests and improvisers on the show. Do you hear that? Only LGBTQ guests and improvisers all month on Spontanean Nation. And we're talking like awesome, hilarious ladies. We got Cameron Esposito. He's got Rhea Butcher. He's got Stephanie Beatrice from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's got Natalie Morales from Parks and Rec. And he's got our own little earwolf favorite, Drew Tarver. That is right. So go to Spontanean Nation now. Hear it every Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. That intermission break that we have, you know, it comes between when Hal reads the lips and then when Hal starts killing people. Yeah. And to me, that intermission break breaks 2001 into two chunks. The first half is all about humans taming space. You know, space is so controlled and calm. People are walking through it just fine. They're eating their food just fine in their little boxes. And post-intermission, it's all about space unknowable, space unpredictable, space out to get you. Humans lose control in the second half completely. But then I would argue that David saves humanity because if we go on this path, the the robots, the computers have won. And by taking away the intelligence of a supercomputer, he allows the human race to evolve yet again and not a computer to evolve. Wow. I always just feel like he pieces out. He's like, bye, humans. I'll see you all <laughs> later. I'm not coming back. Well, as we're talking about Hal, I feel like a real dummy. Did you get like the – like the little joke about the name Hal, that Hal is just one letter off from IBM, I-B-M-H-A-L. <laughs> Whoa. Do you think, is that true? A hundred, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always heard the story that, you know, IBM has some product placement here that Kubrick was super worried about making them mad because IBM themselves had a rule against employees saying at their own company that a computer could be smart. They could never say that it was smart. They couldn't oh, say wow. that it had artificial intelligence up until the 80s because they were worried that it was sacrilegious because they felt that only God could give people intelligence and that if IBM went around being like, our computers are smart, that they would be committing a sin. Wow. So he was really touchy about IBM, knowing too much about Hal, and he wrote them a letter like, do you know that one of the themes is that we have a psychotic computer? I don't want to get you guys in trouble for letting us say that these are IBM machines. And they said, as long as it isn't computer error. Oh, which interesting. Is, yeah. I don't think that's why necessarily that we have um, Haywood Floyd showed up at the end to be like, I programmed hell to yeah. be in charge of this. But maybe because they needed it to be not the computer screwing up, but the computer committing to its mission. Well, it's interesting you say that because they stuck very closely to the IBM story, if you will. When uh, Arthur C. Clarke made a visit to Bell Labs in the early 60s to see a demonstration of an IBM 704 computer, it was singing the Daisy Bell song. So basically he's saying, like, that was the first song I ever learned and this is based on Arthur C. Clarke going to see an IBM computer who could sing that song. I mean, the parallels were... Like, spot on. Wait, that goes even further back, though. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Because the reason that they even had that computer sing the Daisy Bell song is because Alexander Graham Bell sang that on the telephone in the 1890s. Oh, wow. And when you think about it, okay, now we're, like, in imaginary joint land. That song, I'm Half Crazy, All for the Love of You, I Want to Get Married, that's a robot singing about things a robot can't experience, quote, unquote. Yeah. It's mimicking or maybe 
desiring what we think robots aren't supposed to have. Maybe this is a good moment to just do a montage of all the moods of Hal. Confident Hal, robotic-sounding Hal, uh, Hal begging for his life, a thing that none of the humans in the film ever do. They just die quietly in sarcophaguses. We don't get to look at them. Hal wants his own life. And then Hal's flattened robotic death, which I think is so sad. Hal has a bigger range of emotion than anybody else in this movie. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. Sorry about this. I know it's a bit silly. Just a moment. Just a moment. I've just picked up a fault in the AE35 unit. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly. Take a stress pill and think things over. Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? I'm afraid, Dave. Dave, And really, the black rectangle interface of Hal, it looks like the monolith. That's got to be on purpose, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Well, because I think the idea is, I mean, again, this is going into the whole ending of the film, but it's sort of like man creates a weapon and becomes evolved and then creates a computer that essentially is killing man. And so when when Keir Dulay, like, kills Hal, he's actually regaining humanity. He's pulling humanity back. Yeah, it is like the monolith is represented in Hal. And instead of having Hal get all that knowledge, he pulls all the knowledge away from Hal. And then he eventually gets yeah. all that knowledge. Hal should be the next wave of evolution. and actually, Or the, should he? I mean, I think he's going to be. I think he's going to be in real life. All right, let's talk about the sequence where Dave is blowing the bolts off to get in the airlock. They did a lot of research to find out how long you could actually exist in space. They found out it was a couple of seconds and they kind of built this whole sequence for realism. So he said the hatch was actually the ceiling with a camera on the floor shooting straight up. So Kier was headfirst, two stories up, and when he's propelled, he's basically using gravity. So he's being pulled down. He said there's a cable in my crotch which goes through the hatch door outside of the set woven into a rope going into a platform on top of which there was a circus roustabout who had heavy gloves on his hand and the rope was measured and had knots in places where he was supposed to cinch it. So basically the roustabout was going to hold the rope and when it got to a certain point, he'd hold it tight and then Kira would not hit the ground. Wait, I'm sorry. Is a roustabout just a big strong dude? Yeah. Okay. So basically Kira's life was being held by like a carny. Um, <laughs> when he went out, gravity pulled him too quick. The roustabout couldn't get the thing and Kier just Bam! Just like smashed his head right into, you know, right into the wall. He just fell. Like that's why that drop looks so fucking forceful because he literally is just getting smashed. His body is getting uh, incredibly beaten up in that moment. I wonder why I had to specifically be a circus roused about. And, you know, they get, they get, it's a gig economy. <laughs> so, um, you know, we were talking about this movie kind of running in sections. And I want to play this one clip. This is from Life in Pictures. His way of making a film was to concentrate on seven or eight, as he called them, non-submersible units. 
And what this meant was you had a very good chunk, you had another good chunk, and when you had got six good chunks, you were almost home with a movie. It would be easy to connect them. And you can see this principle operating, in particular, in 2001, where I believe that the bits don't quite fit on. You know, it's interesting that the movie is so segmented, and it is kind of calling out the idea that it's a different style of filmmaking. It's it's more artistic than it is narrative. Yeah, which is interesting because, you know, this is by MGM, the people mm-hmm. who did Ben-Hur just nine years before this. When they greenlit 2001 from the guy who had made Spartacus, they thought they were going to get the space Ben-Hur. Right. That was what they were hoping for. And then they get this, a thing that breaks all sorts of conventions of narrative. And they're like, oh, for fuck's sake. And a movie that when it came out, like, I mean, this movie came out, it premiered in an uptown theater in Washington's Cleveland Park District. And MGM Brass is there. And by intermission, attendees are just streaming out because no one liked this movie. Yeah, apparently Rock Hudson walked out going, what is this bullshit? Oh, my God. That's like people were saying this is the end of Stanley Kubrick. Like he would never come back from this. It's a movie that I feel like has clearly very high on our list, 15 on the list. It's influenced so many filmmakers. It's, you know, its tentacles reach out to films like Star Wars and, and you know, movies like Ex Machina. Like, it's still movies a Movies like Airplane 2. Should Airplane? I put it in my oh, Airplane Oh, yeah, please, clip? yeah. <laughs> this is in Airplane 2. There is just an evil robot called Rock. And when you hear some dots, just picture a robot drawing a smiley face. We're going to have to blow the computer. The Rock. <laughs> it's influenced everything. Um, no, it's like it's such an interesting movie, but I think it's a movie that if you're not ready for it, you can't really take it in. Well, and how interesting is it that people have been rooting for Cameron's destruction and we're rooting for Kubrick's destruction? That yeah. whenever we have these big ambitious guys, we're just like, nah, fuck them. Like we are the apes who aren't sure if we want a new tool. Actually, speaking of the things that. 2001 invented, there was a moment when Apple sued Samsung for stealing the design of the iPad. And in court, Samsung's lawyers were like, listen, here's a clip from 2001. This idea has existed way before Apple. Fuck you guys. You know the name of the iPod? It comes from open the pod bay door, Hal. I did not know that. I love it. All right. So it comes to this point. The final segment of this film the Stargate, the Interstellar Highway, whatever you want to call this section where Dave Bowman goes into the great unknown, ends up in this uh, European renaissance whitely lit room, ages very quickly, and the star child is born. This is a, a huge section of the film, 20 minutes with no dialogue. A lot of people have theories on it. We probably have our own theories on it, but let's hear what your theories are on this section of the film is. I think 2001 is intentionally left open for interpretation, but my personal interpretation is that it's about the evolution of intelligence through time. I think it's saying that man must defeat his dependence on technology in order to transcend and uh, truly be reborn. And that the monolith that, that Dave experiences in Jupiter is the problem that any particular individual faces within their life. They seem ominous and large and bold-faced and monolithic. So 2001 is about good versus evil. You don't really know which is represented by the monolith. And so the space baby at the end 
is how we've created a new vessel for information to live on past us. The space baby is artificial intelligence. And we discover new life and all that. It's going to take a form that is going to be uh, trans-dimensional and, uh, and mind-blowing that it will, it will blow our whole understanding of who we are in our space in the universe, and we're not going to be able to really uh, process it. And this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I don't think it's really about what it means, but about how it makes you feel. Um, all right, thanks. Bye. All interesting theories. But before we get into ours, let's talk about the sequence. I mean, this is a pretty trippy, mind-blowy experience. And I think this is the part uh, where people say it's like a, a drug movie, right? This is like, let's do acid and watch 2001. But this doesn't come until, you know, pretty much <laughs> – Two, two hours into the film. Yeah, acid lasts for like 10 hours. So if you're taking acid for 15 minutes, uh, I don't know, dude. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be honest, Paul. I have no fucking idea what that fetus is. You know, look, I am a person who immediately wants to get online and talk about stuff, whether it's The Last Jedi or whether it's 2001. I want to read theories. I want to get in and figure out what does every little thing mean. Um, the way I always see the star child is it's the birth of a new life and like a new life in the sense of humanity's evolution. And I, so I see that star child, this giant baby in the sky, and I don't know if it's meant to be taken literally. There is a story that in the original ending of the movie, the star child's there and then kind of destroys all the nuclear weapons on that satellite where the Howard Johnson's was like, and you know, Kubrick is like, I don't want to do that again because I already did nuclear weapons and strange love. I want to do something different, but that this star child is the birth of a new idea, the next evolution of man. I don't know if I believe that there's a giant star child in outer space <laughs> as much as I think it's a visual representation of the next wave of evolution. Well, there is that blob when they're going through the time zone thing mm -hmm. that looks just like a fetus. There's like shapes that look like a fetus. Yeah. But I don't know if this fetus is supposed to be Dave. I don't think Dave deserves to start the next wave of evolution. I think Dave's just kind of there for the ride. Maybe it doesn't matter who it is. I mean, is that monkey worthy of having the tool to kill? I mean, that monkey showed no discernible traits besides being able to whack a skull with it. You know, people describe that Stargate as the birth canal. Wow, you guys are getting born in some really fun ways. <laughs> I have a perfect memory of my birth. Yeah. No, I'm just lying. I'm just like, I thought, although I will say when Dave shows up in the intergalactic hotel room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, intergalactic hotel room. I mean, he looks rattled. He looks aged. Like he's been kind of unflappable and boring, I would say, for most of the film. Yeah. And when he gets here, like you look in his eyes and he looks like he has seen some shit. Oh, well, I mean, and you get that taste of that he's older. You see like some gray hair. And then it, it it rapidly increases. Like he goes through a whole period of life. And, and I think for us as an audience, I don't believe that he's there for many, many years. I think he's watching himself just kind of go through this within the same time that we're seeing it happen. Um, you know, he is dying to be reborn. I mean, my theory yeah. on Kubrick, honestly, like if you played back all of the layers of me and got to the spine of my theory yes. on Kubrick, it would be mm -hmm. that he's an incredibly bright guy who actually doesn't have a grand design. Like, if he's a universal creator, yes. I think he's more of a splatter paint guy. Okay. He's like, I got some cool paints. Let's see what happens. Because, you know, there's things in here like when David is eating his little dinner and he knocks over the wine glass. Yeah. Like, there's a bazillion online theories about 
Is it about the shattering of a man-made object? Is it about sacred chalices and wine and Jesus and blah, 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 blah. And Kier actually said fairly recently, he was like, no, we were shooting that scene and I was supposed to turn around and see the old man in the bed. And I just wanted a more interesting way to have to turn around. Oh, interesting. And it was his idea. You know, I think a lot of happy accidents happen on these movies, whether it's reading the lips in the pod bay doors, not showing the aliens, the broken glass. It all then comes together and coalesces and creates um, this bigger story. You know, and sometimes things that you have no intention of having meaning take on a lot of meaning because it just works the right way. Again, you can get wrapped up in the ending of this movie many, many times. And I think Arthur C. Clarke has a very simple theory on the film, which I thought was interesting. He says, it's three evolutionary leaps, ape to man, an abortive leap from man to machine, and a final successful leap from man to star child. I think what is so kind of fun about this movie and about The Shining is that you can go deep. I mean, there's a do- the whole movie made about The Shining and what does that mean? And is, is it about how Kubrick faked the moon landing? I mean, it's those types of films are way more interesting to me and live a life of their own because you can tell me a theory that I'd be like, oh, I never thought of it like that. And I would then want to go back and rewatch it again. By the way, how funny is it that people really do think that Kubrick faked the moon landing when I believe that if Kubrick did fake the moon landing, he would have made it look a lot better than just grainy black and white. Oh, 100%. So, as it turns out, this is a movie that got a very negative reaction when it came out. And we talked a little bit about its premiere, people walking out, people not liking it. And I think there's a lot of negative reviews of 2001. There were. I'll just read a tiny bit from Andrew Saris's from The Village Voice. 2001 A Space Odyssey is a thoroughly uninteresting failure and the most damning demonstration yet of Stanley Kubrick's inability to tell a story coherently and with a consistent point of view. And I'll cut to the ending. He said, The ending is a mishmash of psychedelic self-indulgence for the special effects people and an exercise in mystifying abstract fantasy in the open temple of high art. Whoa. However, I wanted to bring up this one because Andrew Sarah saw it right when it came out. Before David Bowie told people he was watching it while taking drops of cannabis tincture, before tons of people were dropping acid, before a kid in L.A. ran through the movie screen, like punched himself through it and yelled, it's God, it's God, before John Lennon told people he saw the film every week. So after all of that, Andrew Saris goes back in 1970 to see the film again, and he says he went back, quote, under the influence of a smoked substance that I was assured by my contact was somewhat stronger and more authentic than oregano. For myself, I must confess that I soar infinitely higher on a vermouth cassis, but enough of this generation gap. Anyway, I find myself reversing my original opinion. 2001 is indeed a major work by a major artist. (laughs) I I love this idea that we're also going through these theories of these giant movies that had an indelible, you know, stamp on culture. People going back to going, well, maybe I got it wrong. I mean, Citizen Kane had that same idea. Maybe I got it wrong. Just like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, there is no wrong way to view this film. But since we are talking about this film in the context of the AFI list, it's number 15. Is it high? Is it low? Where do we where do we feel? I think it might be a little high, to be honest. I think where it does succeed really well is that it has been so influential that I do think it reshaped what space movies were for our entire generation. We are just definitely growing up in a post-2001 world. But I think it deserves that place up there as high as it is right now just because it feels like such an event. I think it feels like a film that should be ranked high, but does it really have to be? 
I think I have to agree with you. I think that this movie is more influential in what it created. It It is an amazing film to watch. It broke boundaries and it's so different and so unique. It's sort of like, does the, the father or the mother of all these other movies belong in a higher spot or a lower spot? I don't know. I, I think you may be right. I think it may go a little bit lower because as a film, it may not be as complete as these other things, even though it is an experience, it's very complete. All right, so Amy, it is come time to roll the die. Uh, we're going back to the sorcerer of film to tell us what we should watch next. What pairs great with uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey? Let's I'm so see. nervous. Here we go. Here we go. I wonder if we'll get anything in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. Yeah, we haven't got anything in the middle of the deck. All right. Oh, it it's lands on 42. 42. This is an interesting one. Oh, Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde. You know, uh, <laughs> sorry, I dropped the dice of power. Oh, no. <laughs> and this is interesting because this movie was only made a year before. 2001 A Space Odyssey, 1967. Yervault, let's do this for our call to action for next week's Bonnie and Clyde episode. We're always like, yo, name a more iconic duo. So can you guys out there name a more iconic duo who should be in a remake of Bonnie and Clyde? Now that Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway aren't really allowed to read lines in public anymore. <laughs> so you're saying that I could pick any iconic duo to be in it. So I can say like Biggie and Tupac in Bonnie and Clyde. Name it. All right, great. Uh, that's your that's your challenge. So call us at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Okay, for those of you who want to continue the conversation, you can get on the Earwolf.com message boards, or you can go to our Facebook page at the Unspooled Podcast fan group. So check it out on both places. Yeah, and we want to thank the listeners who set up that fan group. That was really cool of you guys. That's awesome. And uh thumbs up. And thank you to everybody who is engaging in this conversation. We love it. We're checking in on it all the time. We're watching you. Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season 3 has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, Season 3 is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season 3 of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.